Rest at ease in the awareness of your body posture. Simply feeling yourself sitting. Opening to the different sounds that may be appearing. louder sounds, the softer sounds, and the silence between sounds. Staying grounded in the awareness of your body posture, open to sounds. Connect with the feeling of each breath as it appears. Connecting with the beginning of each breath and sustaining the attention for the duration of each breath. Staying grounded in the awareness of your body, open to sound, feel each breath. Open to any predominant sensations which come into the foreground. There's no particularly predominant sensation. Return to the awareness of the breath or of sound. <coughs> and stay alert for the arising of any mental objects thoughts, images, mind states or emotions. Noting them when they arise, noticing what happens to them, and returning to the awareness of the body, of the breath,
Do you have any questions about your practice? The question was in two parts. One was about the non-discriminating element of mindfulness. That's an essential aspect of the quality of mindfulness or awareness because it points to the wisdom that from the perspective of mindfulness or awareness, all objects are equal so that it doesn't really matter what it is that's arising in our experience, either through any of the sense doors or whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, that the entire thrust of the practice is not about having certain objects arise rather than others, but in purifying our relationship to what's arising. That is, being with experience, whatever it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, without grasping or craving, without aversion, without delusion. That is, without identification with it, without forgetting. So the, one of the images which is used to illustrate this non-discriminating awareness, and remember that it is just a metaphor, so don't solidify the image, um, but that of a mirror because the mirror reflects whatever comes in front of it and has no preference, doesn't choose one thing rather than another. There's tremendous freedom in that when we actually settle back into that quality of awareness with impartiality. And that's really the, the meaning of equanimity. Equanimity means being impartial with respect to what's arising. Now, of course, as we attempt to do this, we see that we're very partial. You know, and almost in every moment, we're liking something or disliking or wanting it to, to be different. So the practice is seeing that, noticing that, and again coming back to that place of non-discriminating awareness. Okay, within that, then the question is, it was framed with respect to when the mind, when the mindfulness is quite subtle and it feels very workable, but it's really in any, in any condition of mindfulness, how we decide whether to choose an object 
right, with, a, with an intentionality to stay with the, the breath, for example, or to settle back and be in a choiceless mode. There are a few guidelines with that. If you find that the mind is wandering a lot, is getting, a lost, getting lost, is quite distracted, then some support for the mindfulness is very helpful. And working with the primary object more at that time, either the primary object of the breath or sounds, right, could be very helpful in terms of stabilizing the mindfulness, the awareness. So one reference point is whether or not you're actually being present moment to moment or the mind is wandering. There was something else in it. <laughs> if the mindfulness, if if the mindfulness is quite uh, strong, if you're not very distracted, um, then I would be with experience as it's happening, and so sometimes in that state of strong mindfulness. There will be many changing objects coming one after the other, and you're just settled back, noticing that flow of change. At other times, when the mindfulness is strong, there won't be a lot happening. Everything is be quite calm, and so the breath, quite naturally, will be the predominant object. And so in that, in that case, you're staying with it because that's what's happening. Not particularly as a support for strong mindfulness because it's already strong. You follow? question being about when the mindfulness and concentration seem to be getting stronger, our experience is that the body gets very tight. And, uh, it doesn't feel like the development of tranquility, which is one of uh, concentration being on that side of things. There are a few possibilities for what's going on. One possibility is that the quality of the effort is too much. You know, so that it's not actually the concentration that's causing the tightness, but if the effort is too strong, if it's too much, so that quality of, it really becomes efforting. And that can cause a, a straining or a tightening of the whole system. So you want to check that. One way of doing it is uh, to come back to sound, to hearing, so that you recognize what a very natural, relaxed quality of awareness is. Because when sounds are arising, you can just sit 
really relax the whole system, simply let sounds appear and disappear. Then, with that as a reference point, you can become aware of the breath, but from that same place of relaxation. So that would be a check to see whether in an effort to concentrate or be mindful, it's too much effort. But there could be something else going on as well. And that is that as our mind gets stiller and the mindfulness stronger, a lot of previously unnoticed or unconscious feelings in the mind and body start to emerge. And so often we become aware of a lot of tightness or tension that is being held in the body that we previously had not noticed. And in the clarity of the mindfulness, all of this is (coughs) revealing itself. So that's another possibility, that you're actually opening just to elements of experience that previously were unknown. Um, And that happens a lot. I mean, we have no idea the level of tension that we're carrying until you sit, (laughs) and then we have an idea. (laughs) and, And so... There's really a a purifying opening process that's happening in that, especially if you can open to that feeling of tightness from a relaxed place. You know, so that you're not adding to it by contracting, by resisting, by aversion. But as the tightness begins to come, to see if you can allow the tightness to appear and be known in the same relaxed way that a sound is known. So you want to check out whether it's that process or there's too much efforting. It's quite amazing how, I mean, it's really miraculous, really, that simply sitting quietly not doing anything. When we're undistracted, everything is revealed. Everything opens up. In the non-doing. But our minds are so habituated to doing. And doing, in this sense, means reactiveness. Not liking this, not liking this. Pushing and pulling. And so awareness or mindfulness really means settling back into the moment with this very open quality, natural quality of mind, which is allowing, which is simply knowing whatever it is that's appearing. And then the whole mind-body bud blossoms, opens. Okay, uh, just two announcements. Requests. Do you have any questions about your practice? Sometimes when I've been walking and or passing people, and she's when I'm not as concentrated, but sometimes I am. A feeling of love and kindness will arrive. 
And it, it pulls me away from you know, my efforts of attending my uh, walking or whatever. And I'm wondering if you could tell me some possibilities of working with that. Because sometimes I just go right into the phrase and don't maybe we had. It also happens uh, with images in mind, you know, my mother or something like that. And also possible uh, pitfalls. Mm. I think it's helpful to work in two different ways with it. Uh, sometimes as the metta arises spontaneously, either in the walking or the sitting, um, just to go with it and spend you know, a few moments, a few minutes doing the metta, expressing the metta as a way of strengthening that quality. And it's particularly nice to do it at those times because it's very un fabricated, it's unforced, it's just coming spontaneously. Um, so in that regard, it's, it's a good time to learn how to recognize the purity of that feeling. You know, because you're really not constructing it, it's coming by itself. Um, so as you do it in those moments, really focus on the unique flavor of metta which is really the purity of that good wish. So that's one way to work with it as it comes. Another way, which I think is also helpful to do, is to note it simply as another arising, and not necessarily to drop into it you know, as the practice, but to be aware of that good wish, the metta arising in the mind. Metta, metta, metta. Lifting, moving, placing. Um, because that, that uh, gives you another perspective on the whole process and the insight into the fact that metta itself is just another arising, even though it's a, it's a wholesome one. Um, so I would practice it in both ways. You want to be a little careful that in those times when you're going with the metta feeling, um, that it's not done out of an avoidance of something. You know, either boredom or some discomfort or something you'd rather not be with. Uh, because then I think it's, at those particular times, it's not that constructive to do. Could you hear the question in the back? The question was about when aversion or anger arises, uh, it feels to her like it's impenetrable. It stands and can't uh, 
get into it to investigate it, and so what to do. Um, I think you want to be careful with the language that you use internally to describe it to yourself. Uh, and by way of instruction also, in, ter in terms of what to do. Penetrate is probably the wrong word. You know, because that, it feels like it's dense and impermeable and you're trying to penetrate it and it just creates... I think a more useful word to internalize uh, would be to open to it. You know, and it's a very different energetic move. It's not like that. It's, there's this density of anger, or whatever it is, it could be anger, it could be fog, it could be confusion, it could be chaos. It's possible to sit back and just open to that whole experience of impenetra impenetrability. Okay, so you're sitting there and you're open to that, you're aware of that, but you're actually resting in the awareness of it rather than caught in it or identified with it or attacking it. Well, and so it's actually quite workable in that sense. And this is the great beauty of awareness, of mindfulness, that it can frame or hold or contain anything at all. And if we're willing to open to the particular characteristics of whatever experience it is. You know, when there's, when there's fogginess of mind, the particular unique characteristics are confusing. We don't quite know what's going on. If we're willing to settle back and open to that and reckon, yeah, there's confusion. But we're sitting in awareness. So it's just confusion that's being known. Or anger being known, or whatever. Uh, and so it's coming back to a very profound simplicity. The problem, of course, is that we have this long-established habit of mind to judge and evaluate and assess what's arising with all kinds of hopes and fears and expectations and whatever, instead of the simple recognition that we can sit back and simply be aware of it. So I've mentioned before uh, a question that has been very useful to me in times of feeling there's a struggle going on of some kind. And the one you described is a good example. Whenever there's a feeling of struggle of some kind, I would ask myself the question, okay, what's happening here? Because the question is a way of, it's a way of settling back and opening up. The question was about the four elements, and it seems a little arbitrary to ascribe lightness to the fire element. Uh, what's the rationale behind it? This is really easy. 
have no idea. The question is, what's the use of this particular schema? Uh, I think the use is... Um, it is just a classification. It's the use of certain concepts to describe experience. The use for some people is that it could help to depersonalize it. You know, when we begin to see all the sensations simply as the manifestation of changing elements, when it's seen in that way, there's less tendency to identify with them as being self or I or mine. You know, it's just the earth element doing its thing. Although the fire element. But why, you know, how certain sensations were ascribed, I really don't know. Judging about getting tired? How to work with the rampant judging mind. <laughs> well, and it's really true both in the metta practice or in the Vipassana practice. It's, it's a... Uh, There are a couple of things that come to mind. One is, uh, I think that the whole thing lightens up uh, if one can sit back with awe at the force of the judging mind. <laughs> I mean, because it is so amazing. You know, you sit back and where is all this coming from? <laughs> you know, and just to see the power of it in our minds. Just having that perspective, kind of, you know, one is already outside of it a little bit and just appreciating the power of it, the power of the habit. I think a helpful way of incorporating working with it in the metta practice is actually to turn the metta towards the judging mind. You know what? Um, I don't know whether you remember a few, a few uh, weeks ago, I read that quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh about working with anger. It's like the sun shining on a flower and just through the force of the sunshine the flower opens. Uh, so it's really bringing that element of kindness, in that case it was to the anger, but it's the same image or the same metaphor for working with the judging mind. You know, as you see it so strongly, can you shine the light of kindness, of metta on that, so that instead of struggling, resisting, contracting, afraid of, right, you hold it more tenderly. Right? And you could. You could use a phrase, for example, uh, 
may I be gentle with this judging, or may I... May the judging be happy. <laughs> May the judge be happy. <laughs> you see, actually, things like that can help in the moment because what happens is we begin to laugh to ourselves. We begin to smile in the mind. And in the moment of smiling at it, rather than struggling with it, it loses its power. Keep in mind, as with all thoughts and feelings, the power that they have is the power we give them. The fact that they're arising in itself is not a problem. But we have this long pattern of identifying, of reacting, to their arising, and that's what's giving them their strength. So to the degree that you can see the judging mind with humor, or with a smile, or with gentleness, it's not a problem then, it's just another passing thought. So this this is both very important because it's so freeing to see how to work with this in this way, and it's also not difficult. I mean, this is, this is not something that's, you know, we need to practice 20 years in order to get it. It's really just, right in the moment, the change of attitude about it. So in that sense, it gets very interesting to work with, because the, the result is so immediate. That is the difference between being caught up in it or a reaction to it, and being gentle or loving or humorous with it. That difference is so immediate and so freeing. Okay. Uh, just one announcement and request and suggestion. Um. Let me express a short Zen anecdote and then ask a question. So a samurai warrior comes to the Zen master and asks for a teaching on heaven and hell. And the Zen master says something, you, you fool, you coarse fellow, you couldn't understand that. And that's the one raised the samurai, he reached for his sword, he's going to cut down the Zen master, he said, that's hell. And the samurai understood, that was the teaching, and his mind like up. That's heaven. And the samurai bowed deeply in gratitude for the teaching. My question, this is a really interesting point. <laughs> What's the connection between that letting go and nirvana, or the mind of enlightenment? Did you hear the question in the back? Hmm. <laughs> well, the question was prefaced by a little Zen anecdote in which um, uh, the samurai comes to the Zen master and wants teachings about heaven and hell, and the Zen master starts insulting the samurai, and the samurai gets very angry and starts to draw out his sword and is about to strike the Zen master. The Zen master says, that's hell. And the samurai understood the teaching, and in that moment his mind let go and opened, and the Zen master said, that's heaven. So Kent is asking, what's the relationship between this mind or heart of letting go and Nibbana?
If you understand Nibbana as the mind free of any craving, and if that <clears throat> letting go of the samurai was that mind, then you could say that that was a moment of Nibbana. Enlightenment at least as it's described in the Theravada tradition, you could say full enlightenment is when craving or the other kalesis don't arise at all. So then it's explained uh, that we have moments of this and at certain points in the unfolding of the practice the defilements are uprooted so that they don't, they don't arise even from a... Uh, the potentiality for them is uprooted. But I like, I like considering the meaning of Nibbana or enlightenment as the mind of no craving. So as I've talked about earlier, it actually shows us what to do in the moment. So instead of it becoming some far-off goal that we're aspiring to, it's actually an instruction for us moment to moment. As we're sitting with anything arising, a thought, a sound, a sensation, right, the breath, to actually practice that mind of freedom, the mind of no craving. And you can, you can have that same experience as that samurai, of just that moment of letting go, of any kind of grasping, of wanting. That's a real interesting place to look. Have you any words, even for when practice goes right off the rails? <laughs> when, as yesterday, I had a day... In a good way or a bad way? <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> it just felt so beat up and so in it that I didn't want to do it anymore. So I spent the day in my room, hiding out, reading the book, doing everything I knew I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> And then what happened? <laughs> then it got to be 9.15 last night, and I said, I better go back to work. And I came in for the city. But what about those moments when... It's what I was talking about the other night, really. Um, of seeing the times of difficulty that come up in the practice as the edge of what we're willing to be with. That's our boundary. Sometimes you have the willingness, or perhaps often, you have the willingness and the energy to really explore what it would mean to open to whatever that experience is. Because we're comfortable with this much in our practice, in our lives. We get right to the boundaries here and it gets too uncomfortable and we <laughs> withdraw. So the, this is the limit of our freedom. We're okay within this range, but it gets a little bit more than that because it's uncomfortable or unpleasant or painful or whatever, so we pull back. One of the gifts of the practice is that it actually brings us out to our edge. Right? And so we start to be with experience that perhaps for quite a time in our practice or in our lives, we have been unwilling to open to or unwilling to be with. So here in our practice, it brings us to that point can we arouse 
It's really a question of interest, it's a question of courage in a way. Can I be with this? One way of doing that, and it's, it's often forgotten in the midst of whatever turmoil it happens to be, often there's an attempt to hold on to something for dear life in the midst of the turmoil, you know, the breath or the walking, and so we try to narrow down our attention. And often what's needed is exactly the opposite. Instead of trying to hold on to the breath in the middle of the whirlwind, what we need to do is settle back, open up, and frame the whole whirlwind so that we're not struggling with it, we're not trying to <clears throat> we're not trying to uh, narrow our attention in it, but actually open up and make that whole experience the object of your awareness, sitting back, turmoil, whirlwind, chaos, fear. You know, and if you make the frame big enough, then you can actually get into an accepting relationship of whatever that particular mind or body state is. You see that it's actually possible to relax behind confusion or behind anxiety or whatever. In the, I don't know if this has been mentioned to you in the, in the teaching of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the great discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. In the last foundation, where it's called Mindfulness of the Dhamma, it's quite interesting because among the things listed, it says the yogi is mindful when concentration is present and when it's not present. Mindful when energy is present, when it's not present. It goes through all the factors of enlightenment. And so it's pointing to the fact that we can be aware whether those factors are present or they're not present. We're simply mindful of the fact, yes, at this time, these factors are absent. So this is all by way of encouragement when we feel like we're in a place where we can practice. It's just too much. Not to give up too quickly. Right? To, to actually take interest in whatever that state is. The discouragement, the no, there's, a, there's a wide range of what the, the boundary might be. But sometimes even when you do that, for whatever reason, it's just, let me out of here. <laughs> so then it's fine, you know, you don't want to create a prison mentality. It's not about that. It's about exploration and finding the balance. And sometimes... I don't suggest this as a, as a frequent strategy, but sometimes it's necessary just to pull back. You spend the day in your room reading, you might go for just a walk in the woods, something like that, just to you know, cool everything out a little bit, get out of the struggle mode. One of the things I found very helpful at those times is really uh, being in nature. Somehow, being in the woods, it's, it's much harder to be neurotic in the woods. <laughs> it is. It, uh, <laughs> but I think it's an energy thing. You know, it's like some, when, when we're in these kind of states, it's like it's bouncing off the walls. The kind of, but you go out into the woods and shh, you know, it's like the trees absorb it all quite graciously. <laughs>
<laughs> that might have been a little flippant. <laughs> It's a good question, and it's really the same principle. That's your edge. And we all, our boundaries are all quite unique to our particular conditioning and background, you know, of, of what's easy for us to be with and what's difficult for us to be with. And so in that situation, you very much want to settle back into the awareness of the pleasantness. So it's not pushing it away in any way. Sometimes people, uh, there's interesting conditioning around pleasant experience. Sometimes people push it away a little bit out of fear of attachment. You know, they're kind of worried that the mind is going to get attached and so they try to keep it at some distance. Sometimes people just have fear of the pleasant feelings, not even of the attachment. You know, and so then there's the, the need to really settle back and in the same way that you could have that gentleness of approach with pain, you could bring that same gentleness with the pleasantness. And really, really, uh, it's the meta aspect of mindfulness. Um, once there's that level of acceptance, then it's really to bring uh, some measure of investigation to the situation so that you begin to see that from the perspective of awareness, whether something is pleasant or unpleasant is irrelevant. It's just another arising experience. Some happen to be pleasant, some happen to be unpleasant. They're all changing. And that's why the goal is not to hold on to or try to create any particular kind of experience because they're all just arising and passing away can we settle back and we rest in that quality of openness just in the images used the images which are used to describe that are like the sky or like space so it's, you know, it's just this emptiness which contains everything in which everything appears and so then we're sitting and there's painful sensations which arise, pleasant sensations, neutral sensations, and it's all just appearances. Okay, last question. The question was about this feeling of restlessness uh, each night in the last sitting and that no matter what she tries to do, stretching or walking or whatever, it always seems to come on in that last sitting. Uh, I've had very similar experiences on intensive retreat 
where one sitting, or sometimes even two, but, but often just one sitting sometime in the day or evening or night, it just feels like I want to jump out of the skin. You know, it's just really difficult. Uh, so there are a couple of things you can do. One is, there's something interesting about it, you know, even though it's really difficult. But to, to actually see if you can explore, not try to get rid of the restlessness, but just try to see, okay, what, what is this feeling that makes the body so agitated? You know, so again, you need to make a very big frame of it, not try to be holding on to the breath or anything like that. It's like, make a really big frame for the whole experience. Um, you might try standing, you know, instead of sitting. My experience has been that even though the pattern repeats itself for quite a while, that it does change. You know, and one time you'll come into that last sitting, it'll be nice and calm. But again, from look at it if you can. From the perspective of awareness, the mind or an image for the mind would be like a mirror which simply is reflecting whatever's coming before it. So the mind's knowing faculty, that which knows, that's what's analogous in this metaphor to the, to the mirror. So what's being known is restlessness. Restlessness is being known. See, instead of getting pulled in or giving emphasis to the restlessness, see if you can actually give emphasis to that mirror-like quality of the mind, to its being known. And so that, it's then possible to actually, in other words, to sit back and allow the restlessness simply to be an appearance in the emptiness of the mind rather than in some way being caught up in it. Oh. Enjoy the mirror-like, jewel-like nature of your minds. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.